joined today uh, by Reverend William Philip of the Tron Church in Glasgow. Uh, the Tron Church, uh, and uh, William in particular, uh, was one of uh, 12 churches in Scotland that fought the government over the COVID restrictions, uh, taking them to court and winning uh, a judicial review and uh, having essentially the government being forced to admit that their actions in closing down the churches uh, exceeded their authority and was unlawful. And uh, this is one of several areas where Will William has been fighting against the sort of authority that most Christian churches in Scotland have instead uh, been quietly acquiescing to. And what we're going to talk about today is uh, that area of conflict, of uh, how, how the Christian should resist evil, and how the, the Christian should behave in a, in a world which is ruled in ways which is not compatible uh, with the teaching of Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, William, um, welcome. Uh, Thank you. I would like to start um, with um, uh, your, your overview of the nature of the society and the state in, in Scotland. Um, when I was a small boy, I used to think that we lived in a remarkably uncorrupt world, in Scotland at least. It, the world may be corrupt, but my nation was basically clean, was basically straight. And the more I found out, the more I realised that this wasn't true. I now tell people uh, with a sense of false pride that Scotland is in fact the finest corruption in the world, because <laughs> it'll take people decades to find out exactly how they were corrupted. Um, so intricate and tightly bound is the system. Now there are reasons for that and we might get to those shortly but first as an overview um, do you agree that uh, we have a problem with corruption in our country and how bad is it? Well um, I think the first thing to say is that uh, you know there's much in what you believed as you were young that, that that was true and you know we've got a lot to be thankful for in this country that comes from uh, hundreds of years of our Christian heritage uh, particularly the last four or five hundred years since the Reformation in Scotland uh, its society its institutions its law its um, uh, government so on um, have been based on a very firm foundation which comes from Christianity and particularly from Reformation uh, uh, Christianity. So that has seeped into our culture and underpins so many things which um, do give us cause to be thankful and have been a great privilege. And uh, we've had many, many things which we take for granted, which you can't take for granted or haven't been able to in many other parts of the world. However, of course, um, every human heart, the, 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 the same Christianity and the same biblical truth that has given us so much, teaches us that the human heart is deeply corrupt, it's full of sin, <laughs> that um, out of the heart of man, said Jesus, comes all manner of, uh, of corruptions. And um, it's not that the problems are in the world outside that seep into us, it's that the world outside is affected by that which comes out of the human heart. And so no nation is, uh, is exempt from that, no matter how, how privileged. Um, 
But what I think has helped our country in the past, because of its strong Christian understanding, is that that realistic understanding of human nature has been built into the fabric of our society. We've understood the nature of human beings as being flawed, not um, ultimately good. Uh, the, 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 the progressivist vision of the world that human beings are basically good and we just need to get away from all the, 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 the evils of society and culture around, strip these away and we'll all suddenly flourish as we ought to, um, is, is just wrong. And, and so as that kind of ideology has increasingly permeated our society and as the, the forces of evil as they see it, forces of conservatism, I think was the phrase that Tony Blair famously used. Basically, all that is in our heritage in the past is really the, the oppressor, and we push that away, um, and that will bring in nirvana. In fact, what we've seen is that's, that's brought the opposite, because so many of those things that have been pushed away are the very things that were restraining uh, the evil uh, in the heart of man, evil from permeating uh, society and our institutions and so on. So I'm afraid... <laughs> The truth is that as we've tried to throw off the shackles of these so-called oppressive ideas of the past, what we've thrown off is the merciful and gracious protections of God's common grace upon our society. And we shouldn't be surprised that when that happens, um, we find that our society becomes more freely able to express and gives more freedom to the human corruptions, the things that come from the, from the human heart. And I feel that's more and more what we are witnessing now uh, in, in the Western world in general. This is not unique to, um, to Scotland, but um, um, these are the features of a de-Christianizing of our culture. Um, some people like to talk about post-Christian, but what, what post-Christian really means is, is, a, is a regression back to pre-Christian. And, you know, we're, we're, go we're going more and more and more back to well, pre-Christian paganism. I find now when I open the Bible and you read um, about uh, uh, Old Testament Canaanite culture, which was suffused with all kinds of uh, sexuality at every part and the idolatry that's there, more and more and more, it's... It, it's it's extraordinarily easy to see, well, this is the culture that we see all around about us today. And I'm afraid I think that is where we are heading uh, as, as a culture in Scotland and in Britain, um, and actually particularly in the Anglosphere in the Western world, uh, in the part of the world that was most touched by Orthodox Protestant Christianity in particular. These seem to be the countries uh, that are now accelerating fastest uh, away from that. It's interesting to me that the the countries that seem to be um, uh, grasping most uh, most gladly and chasing most uh, fully the the, the, the so-called woke uh, agenda um, seems to be particularly the Anglosphere former uh, publicly Protestant Christian countries, and uh, I don't think that's an accident. No. Uh, you, you you highlight there the the nature of the the, the new agenda, the the new religion, the woke mm -hmm. religion. Um, I think very accurately because what you say is it doesn't have an accurate model of humanity of what mm -hmm. it is to be a man or woman 
the nature of mankind because the view is it is only um, you know such things as religion painted as a bad nations which subdivide people painted as a bad mm -hmm. uh, families increasingly yep. painted as problematic and toxic um, that um, keep human beings away from the the perfection that they would be if only they could be their authentic selves. These mm -hmm. is, this is the type of language that's used. Um, and it is obviously the complete reversal of the Christian position. And this has, you know, underpinnings that you're quite right. Go back to Gnosticism, which was a, a yep. challenge to Christianity in the first century. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes back before that to um, to the ancient religions which predated it and which view essentially mankind as well it's the lie that the serpent told isn't it you shall be as gods yeah. the only reason that you're not being as gods is you've been tricked into not realising that you are all along this is the ideology so this is one that tends to puff people up and tell them they're wonderful and at the same time see them in the most abject misery. Possibly the saddest sight I saw in the last year was in George Square in Glasgow. Um, Kelly and, and Kelly Jakeen? Kelly Jakeen, Posey Parker's her st stage name, uh, was having a, a, a meeting to let women speak at one side of George Square. And at the other side of George Square, there was a collection of um, opposing forces. Um, the trans lobby, um, uh, people who would identify as queer, and um, people who supported them. So the LGBT, the alphabet people, the LGBT, mm. etc., QIA, 2S plus um, group. And um, one um, one young woman came down to shout at the other women. She came from the protest group to shout at Posey Parker's um, uh, meeting. And um, dressed, dressed as a male, um, li lifted up uh, her shirt to reveal her mastectomy scars and screamed that I'm happy, I'm happy. Right? Mm. And to see this, this poor soul with a mutilated body in a public square, shouting like that. I, my heart went out to her because she's got no easy way to peace mm -hmm. presented to her. And that is being held up as the exemplar of the new morality. And it's everything that is harmful. And at the same time, it says it's everything that's liberating. So it's, it's a very striking challenge. Now, here's my concern about the mainstreaming Christianity. And there's many good things happening and many good people doing good work. But the mainstreaming Christianity has not stepped up to the challenge of that. Um, it's not stepped up to the challenge that there is an alternative religion being um, being inculcated 
in schools <coughs> and elsewhere, in government. I just left a meeting in the Scottish government um, and um, all, the, all the toilets were labelled gender neutral toilets because mm. that ideology has captured the government and that's what's done. And they were still apologising for this and they were, they were talking to some ladies who had been subject to some pretty horrendous abuse um, as young children and clearly felt embarrassed about asking these ladies to use a gender neutral toilet, rightly so. So you could see they were uncomfortable with mm -hmm. the position they were in, but that was the position they were in. So, a couple of questions I have for you. First, um, do, you, do you see the mainstream in Christianity in Britain failing to, to rise to the challenge of this? And where you see elements of, uh, of the church rising up um, where do you see it succeeding and how do you see it succeeding? Well, I think the church, um, the church has a calling to be uh, a witness to light and truth in society. Paul says that the church of Jesus Christ is uh, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Um, and that, that, that means not just for itself, but, but to show to the world from the very beginning of the calling out of God's people, the household of Abraham, uh, all uh, onwards, right throughout Israel and, uh, and into, into this age of fulfillment in the, the, the Israel of God, both Jew and Gentiles. The calling of God's people is to be a light to the world, to bring the light of God and the truth of God uh, to the world. And so, um, yes, the church has a lot to answer for, um, and I include myself in that. Uh, you know, we, we, we all have that calling from God, and I think it's true to say that in our, in our contemporary situation, uh, in, in our nation, um, people are often looking to the church and asking for a spiritual lead and even a moral lead and finding, um, finding there isn't much coming. I mean, uh, countless, countless times people have said to me, um, you know, the only time, the only thing we hear from uh, so-called church leaders when we see them in the, in the media is to talk about um, political issues. You know, why is the church always talking about climate change or about COVID instead of about Christ? Um, and, 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 and the way that Christ brings. So, so yeah, I think we have a lot to, to, to answer for there. Um, but, you know, it's difficult. It's, 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 it, it requires a great deal of courage because you're up against it uh, today. You know, no, no church leader will be pilloried uh, in the media today for standing up in public and, 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 and giving a speech telling us all we should reduce our you know, carbon footprint or, or that we should be more, um, you know, uh, pro-trans or any of these sorts of things. You'll get applause. Um, but if you stand up and dare to say some of the things that the gospel demands that we say, that we need to call people to repent, to turn away from their wickedness, to bow the knee to Jesus Christ alone, to say to our world, there is no way other than uh, the way, the truth and the life, you'll be very quickly criticised, you'll be pilloried, you'll be um, receiving brickbats, not just from the world outside, but from many, many within the professing church. So it's hard and it's 
painful and it's difficult to do that. And so I completely understand why people shrink from that because nobody wants to be, <laughs> nobody wants to be uh, uh, pilloried and to be unpopular and to be called all sorts of nasty names and called a bigot and a homophobe and you know you know all the the, the, the swear words today. No, no person I know wants to be called all of those things. I certainly don't. So I find it an enormous personal struggle uh, when the responsibilities on my shoulders from God to, to, to speak the truth of God. So I, I understand, but, but that's why the church is called to have courage. And, you know, that's been the way it's been from the beginning. The Lord Jesus Christ said that if you follow me, you've got to take up your cross. Now, the cross is not just the emblem of humiliation. It is the means of crucifixion. It is the means of persecution um, by the state officially, but but also unofficially, uh, you know, read the Gospels and see how Jesus was treated. The common people heard him gladly, but the religious establishment, the state establishment, plotted to kill him. The apostles went the same way. So it's very hard. That's why the Apostle Peter, for example, in his first letter has to urge elders in the church to take a lead and not to do it by compulsion, but to do, to do it gladly. Why do you think he has to push them to the front? Well, they don't want people throwing bricks at them. Uh, and, and so it is very hard to be carrying a message that the culture around does not want, is rejecting, and, and, and actually now is calling evil and wicked. You know, we've had the President of the United States, for example, um, saying that, um, uh, I think it was one of the states in America that was trying to pass laws to protect children from um, mutilating surgery for, for transgenderism trying to ban that, the president himself was saying that is evil. So you've got the world and very powerful people in the world calling good evil and evil good. Well, it's very tough to be on the, on the receiving end of that, isn't it? So I understand why it's very, very hard and why people shrink back and why people want to conform. But when I feel those things in my heart, the verse that comes into my head, and I believe it's the Holy Spirit who's reminding me of this, is that Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Conversely, he said, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and, uh, and utter all kinds of falsehood uh, uh, to you on, on my account. Blessed are you because so they persecuted the prophets who were before you and great is your reward in heaven. In other words, what he's saying is, when all of that is happening to you, you know you stand in the line of the faithful ones who've gone before, and you know you have your place with the faithful who've gone ahead of you. But all those encouragements and all those um, uh, strong words in Scripture come because it's a great battle. The very first, I love to, I love to, I've been preaching through Genesis uh, recently, and I love to point out that the first definition of a believer in the Bible, I believe, is in, is in Genesis chapter 3, where God makes the great promise that the Proto-Evangelium, where he talks about the, the, the seed of the woman bruising the head of a serpent. And Eve, um, he says, will be the mother of all the faithful. And he says, um, I will put enmity between you and the serpent and between your seed and his seed. So the definition of a believer is somebody in whom God has turned around and put enmity and put a struggle between you and the forces of evil and the, world, and the world, the flesh and the devil. So the definition of a believer is somebody who is going against the crowd. Jesus uses exactly that same imagery, doesn't he, when he says the, uh, the gate is narrow 
that leads to life, and the way is narrow and hard. And um, I, I, the, the picture I have in my mind when I, I, I think of that is, uh, I, I lived in London for five years, and it, it, you're going down the, the, the tunnels in the London Underground when you went at rush hour time, when everybody is going in one direction down a tunnel. If you turn around and try and go against that crowd, you will be battered in the face constantly and buffeted. And so, well, that's what Jesus is saying. The, the, the way to life is going against the flow of everybody else. You'll get a constant battering, a constant pushing back. You, 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 the, the pressure to turn around and just go with the flow is, is absolutely immense. That's the pressure that the church in this country is under, church leaders in this country are under, every Christian is under if they're going to be true to their calling. And the sad truth is, as we know, is that, as Jesus says, well, many are those who find the Broadway. Many are those who, who say, I can't take this anymore. I'm just turning around and I'm going back. But the Church of Jesus Christ is still here today and is growing all over the world today. And the gospel is still being proclaimed today because Christian people and Christian leaders and Christian preachers and evangelists have always uh, been there who have stood the ground and have not turned and gone with the flow, but have stood against it. But they've taken a battering for doing it. But that's, that's the calling of the Christian way. And um, that's, that's what the church needs to embrace. And where the church and where leaders have stood firm and have spoken for the truth, um, they have been noticed. And I think, I think people have respected that. I've certainly found, uh, I'm a very, very reluctant combatant. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm as big a coward as any man. And, and, and I'm certainly a reluctant um, public combatant. You, you, you mentioned the judicial review and so on. I, I did not relish that. I found that very, very difficult. I would, have, I would have run 100 miles rather than do that, given the choice. But when I have done these things, and when I have um, spoken in public and sometimes in hostile situations and, uh, and spoken the truth of God from Scripture, uh, as I believe it to be, um, I have found that many people who, who, who disagree with me or don't share those beliefs uh, have said, you know, thank you for speaking like that because to, to, to hear somebody speaking with conviction rather than speaking for, for gain is a valuable thing. And I believe that. I, 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 I honour that in other people who, who may stand for things that I, I, I don't share or disagree with. But I, I do think that that sense of personal courage and a willingness to stand for what is right it, 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 it's something that seems to be lacking very greatly now in our public life. I mean, generations ago, there were, there were politicians who you may have disagreed with greatly, but you, you greatly respected the fact they had a belief, they had, they had a, 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 you know, there was something they stood for, they had convictions, and they would not move from them. And um, I think we're not seeing that as much as we should do in the church, and that may be one of the reasons why we're not seeing that uh, as, as we should do in public life. And certainly, judgment begins at the house of God. But, but before we start judging those outside, I think within the church, we need to look to ourselves and see, look, are we, are we standing up? Are, are, are we, who are called to be shepherds of the flock, being good shepherds or not? And the Bible is full of the Lord challenging those and saying, you know, my people are being led by 
by wicked shepherds who are, who are, who are not caring for the flock, who are not leading them where they should do and, and so on. So the church, the church must bear the weight of its own, uh, its own failings and, and, and we must repent of that and, and seek to do all that we can to, to be willing to speak truth and to speak truth to power. And I think you can't do that unless you're able to do that with a degree of integrity because you're, you are standing within your own uh, arena uh, for that which is true. And so, you know, I, I pray to God he will help me and, 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 and others uh, to do that. The, uh, you mentioned shepherds. One of the shepherds who was a, a good shepherd was David, obviously. And at one point he was being cursed by someone who had a different political view and world view from him. Yeah. Uh, and the troops said, look, we'll go and hit that guy in the head. And he said, you just leave him alone. Yeah. Maybe God will reward me good things for all the bad yeah. things he's wishing me. Uh, because David knew he was innocent of what he was being charged with mm-hmm. and looked um, and, and, and was and didn't care about the lies. And in a world where we are faced very often with um, speech that's meant to close down debate, mm-hmm. right? It's the slur words, you're a racist, you're a homophobe, you're mm-hmm. a Nazi, mm-hmm. you're a whatever, right? All of these things are meant to silence debate. Um, trans rights or human rights, mm-hmm. um, love is love, right? all of these things, yeah. they're meant to be an end point. Mm-hmm. They're meant to shut down thought mm-hmm. and speech and, um, and, and essentially claim a space. Mm-hmm. And uh, David wasn't buying that and I, I don't think we should either. And there is, well, let me ask the next question, right? So you're, you're not a natural pugilist, shall we say, <laughs> right? But right, I've got that point. Does it get easier? Because you've been doing quite a bit of fighting on things that, that, that you yeah. consider um, vital, and we'll get to the specifics of that mm-hmm. shortly. Um, so that's not your nature, right? So you, we all start off with a certain, a certain human nature. We've got a certain Upbringing and a, yeah. and temperament and, yeah. a, and, a, and a certain um, inheritance uh, genetically as well, um, and that's not necessarily the end point that God might want for us, right? So you have experiences mm-hmm. and you've got to overcome. Uh, we've all got to overcome our, the limitations of our character. Mm-hmm. So you've not being a natural um, uh, combative personality. I've had to learn how to do this with practice does it become easier does it become fun uh no well it hasn't it hasn't for me and i hope it wouldn't because um i think uh, you know i don't think fighting for the sake of fighting i don't think we're to be cantankerous people and um paul paul says to timothy you know the servant of the lord must not strive he mustn't be a quarrelsome person he mustn't be the sort of person seeking out strife and stirring up dissension in fact you to run away from that, um, you know, and, and, and those things are tempting. Uh, I think he says that to Timothy, you know, youthful passions, he calls them. People often take that as sexual things. I don't think it's that at all. I think what he's talking about, the, you know, the nature of young men to, you know, want to have fisticuffs and, and, and fight. And no, so, so, so that's the wrong kind of fighting. Um, what we've got to be prepared to fight, though, is the battles of the Lord, the battles that, that God puts in front of us. They're very interesting 
narrative in the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy where Moses is talking to the people on the brink of the land of promise and they're about to go in and he he narrates um, people that they're not to stray into and not to start having battles with but then he also says well there are those you are going to have to do battles with Uh, those are ones who stand within the path that God has called you to the path the road to, 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 to his kingdom don't get distracted with all sorts of battles that are not yours um, but on the other hand, don't shirk the battles that the Lord does require you to, to fight. And so um, the, the Apostle Paul is a good example of this. Um, he uh, would not fight battles just for his own personal gain or for his own personal reputation or so on. He would rather go to prison than that. But he would fight battles where the gospel was at stake. You know, he famously fought a pretty strong verbal battle with the Apostle Peter uh, over Peter's uh, reneging on his, uh, on, on, on his proper Christian conduct, uh, in, uh, uh, refusing to eat with Gentiles in Galatia and so on. He, when he was put in prison wrongly in Philippi, he, he wouldn't just be brought out and, and go quietly um, because he'd been beaten up as a Roman citizen unlawfully and so he wasn't going to just slip out the back door. He made them to face up to it. Why did he do that? Well principally to protect the newfound uh, church uh, in Philippi. So he was going to establish uh, proper legal rights. Um, So he wasn't fighting for himself or for his own ego, but he was fighting for the cause of Christ and the gospel. So there are times when we have to fight and there are times when when we're not to fight. And I think we need to be very clear about that. Um, I think I, I think it's a dangerous sign if you start to be looking for fights. I'm not su- I'm not suggesting you should be looking for a fight. I'm suggesting when you're when you're in one and it's the right struggle. Does I'm asking does does the practice help? Does it become easier? Yes, I, I I don't well I don't think it becomes easier. But I think perhaps what I would say is it becomes um, it becomes clearer. In other words, um, you begin to see that um, having had to fight certain battles, you begin to realize that this is part and parcel of what Christian life, and particularly Christian leadership, is going to be like. One hopes that when you read all these things in Scripture, you think, well, that won't happen to me and that won't involve me. But perhaps it's just the older you get and the more experience you have, you realize that actually, no, it will, and you can't avoid these things. And there will always be battles. Um, they'll take all sorts of different forms. And, uh, you know, sometimes they'll be very hidden. Sometimes they'll be more public. Sometimes there'll be this issue or that issue, all kinds of different things. But battle is normal for Christian life and leadership because we're in well, as the Apostle John says, this world lies in the power of the evil one. So Christians are those who have been set against uh, the world, the flesh and the devil. So, so, that, so there will be battles. And I think one of the things that we are beginning to see now in our contemporary experience is that some of the kinds of battles, which are perhaps more overt battles with uh, the culture, but also with the authorities, uh, which we thought perhaps were things we left behind at the end of the 17th century, haven't been left behind and perhaps are, are, are coming back in, or things that we expected to see only in countries like, I don't know, uh, behind the Iron Curtain, uh, as we used to call it when I was growing up, or in China or in, uh, in Islamic uh, countries. Um, things that we thought were, were, were over there, but not here, we're beginning to see, and we will see more and more, uh, 
are going to be part and parcel of, uh, of life here because the somewhat peaceful coexistence of church and state that had been brought about by the Christianization uh, of the culture uh, is diverging. Um, I, when I grew up and was at school, um, I came from a Christian family, but many of my friends weren't from Christian families, many of my teachers were not really Christian, but everybody that I knew, everybody in my world shared essentially the same worldview, and it was a worldview shaped by, by Christian morality. And, uh, you know, although there were people, the majority of these people wouldn't profess to be Christians, they were, uh, to, to at least some extent, culturally Christianized. Um, and, and, and so it was easy to think that the church and the culture thought the same about things because outwardly that manifested in very similar ways. But there's been a great divergence there and uh, there's a very clear gap. Clear, well, I suppose clear blue water, that sounds like a political slogan, but th there's a clear um, divergence um, between the worldview and therefore the ensuing morality and ethics and understanding of life, particularly in terms of, of big things like family, church and nation, which is now a very, very different uh, thing from, from, from the prevailing cultural milieu now in, 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 in this country. And that has inevitable challenges. Um, and that will bring, I think, where there is consistency for Christians, that will bring inevitable clashes uh, with the culture in all kinds of ways, but perhaps ultimately with the authorities and perhaps with the law. Well, the first century church was always in trouble with the law, and I, I, I did, I did smile in one, one biblical description of how uh, the, the, a couple of apostles got arrested for preaching, and eventually they got let out of jail, and they went back to the point where they were arrested, and it was basically like as we were saying, and they continued on, yeah. and there was this yes, okay, the state can do what the state can do. But we are going to do what we are going to do. It's very clear. And this, um, the, the first century church was um, no friend of the state, was seen as a threat, was a threat because it was saying um, Caesar's not king, Christ is king. It was a threat. Um, it wasn't the threat in the way that, that the state and Caesar might have thought mm -hmm. I might have perceived it because they wouldn't be understanding the the self-governing aspect of Christianity you know this book is government of the people by the people for the people said Wycliffe of the first English translation of the Bible um, but nonetheless they saw it as a threat um, the acceptance of conflict as part of the the, the the happy acceptance, the contented acceptance of conflict as part of the Christian experience in the first century is inspiring and is, I would agree, something we should look to to learn from because that's the way things are going. Now, uh, I'd like to move on to your experience of, of some more specific uh, struggles. And the first one that I heard of is essentially why the Tron Church is in Socky Hall Street and not in the Tron Church. If you could give us a little outline of, of, of your struggle for, I suppose you would put it, well, would you put it as um, 
uh, ideological, theological, not independence, but 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 freedom to follow the the word of God as you see it, as opposed to um, uh, being within a church hierarchy, where the church hierarchy is perhaps imposing ideas that you're not you're not comfortable with. Is is is, yeah. is that the background? Um. Yes, kind of. Uh, I wouldn't put it quite like that. So again, uh, I said I'm a reluctant uh, fighter. We were a very reluctant uh, seceders. Um, we were not by nature uh, fiercely independent, although I wouldn't have been part of the National Church in the first place. Um, by nature, we were Catholic uh, with a small c, uh, saw ourselves very much as part of the uh, the wider church. The issue, though, was that um, what happened uh, 10, 15 years ago in the Church of Scotland is precisely what's happening today, uh, being played out very publicly in terms of the of the Church of England and the worldwide Anglican Communion. Um, the Church of England uh, is adopting uh, an approach towards uh, same-sex marriage and relationships and all uh, all these sorts of things. Um, which is quite contrary to scripture. As a result of that, 85% of the worldwide Anglican Communion has now um, called the Church of England to repent, has said that the Archbishop of Canterbury is now no longer recognised by them. You're not hearing much of this reported in the mainstream media, of course, but, but that's, that's just happened within these last few weeks. Well, it was exactly that same thing uh, which happened previous to us. The Church of Scotland went down a path departing. Uh, we, we would put it this way. We did not depart from... Um, our constitution, our biblical beliefs, our confession of faith, the Westminster Standards, but the Church of Scotland as a whole, um, I'm afraid, uh, although drifting in that direction for a long time, finally, um, officially uh, departed from its, uh, it, 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 its, uh, its own standards and, and from biblical standards. And at that time, we, along with quite a number of other congregations, over 20, and about double that number in terms of, of ministers, uh, unfortunately, said, well, we can't, we can't be in fellowship any longer. We can't share communion, um, meaning uh, material fellowship, sharing, being uh, uh, in practical ways, supporting that kind of ministry. The, the, not because we wanted to think that we could go off and form a little holy huddle that was perfect on its own, but just because, um, well, these, these issues are are issues of eternal moment. Um, it essentially was espousing a gospel that said, well, you don't have to repent. Come as you are and stay as you are. Whereas the true gospel says, come as you are, but change. Jesus famously, when he spoke to the woman who was about to be stoned for adultery, uh, you know, disarmed the hypocrites who were seeking to uh, stone her by saying, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. Well, he shamed them by that. And he said to the woman, uh, neither do I condemn you, but go and leave your life of sin. He didn't say, neither do I condemn you, go back and carry on as you like. So there's grace, there's mercy, there's forgiveness, but that requires repentance. And if you cut that repentance out of the gospel, you've emasculated, in fact, it destroyed the gospel. So that's, that's what happened as a result we had to leave uh, the, the, the building uh, that had been our home in Buchanan Street, which incidentally we'd refurbished uh, to the tune of almost three million pounds. It's beautiful. Um, largely 
uh, almost completely with the uh, congregation's own giving. We didn't raise money from any uh, trusts or anything like that. Um, so it cost us. It, it wasn't a. It wasn't a. <laughs> it wasn't virtue signalling. It, it, it was a real loss. But we we now are in uh, Bar Street. We also have a building in the West End at Kelvin Grove and one in the South Side in Queens Park. The Lord has multiplied our. Uh, premises and uh, and multiplied our work so we've never we haven't lost although we lost a lot materially um, but it taught us a very important thing it taught us that what really matters is not what anyone any man can take away from us uh, you know if God is for you who can be against you and um, what can man do to me? So, so we learned that lesson. It was painful in many ways. I wouldn't like to go through that whole process again. It was very stressful and difficult and distracting. But looking back, um, I thank God for it. One of the things that uh, I've learned doing this is I, I can't rely on labels. People who say I'm a Christian, I'm a fill in anything, right? Yeah. Liberal, Democrat, right, conservative, uh, the labels don't mean anything. Mm -hmm. If someone is saying something and it's costing them and they're still saying it, that means something. It means that person, they might be right, they might be wrong, mm -hmm. but they do mean it. They are genuine. Yeah. They are authentic. Um, this is very significant. Now, so you came here and several other places uh, and um, this obviously gave you a, f a greater freedom to direct your own course and make, you, make your own decisions than you would have had under the Church of Scotland umbrella. Um, and then, then came COVID. And um, as uh, my, my good friend uh, John William Noble from Aberdeen has said, um, most of the churches decided that Nicola Sturgeon was the head of the church in Scotland not Jesus Christ. <laughs> and when Nicola Sturgeon says, close the doors, they said, yes, Nicola. And they did. And um, the, there was massive compliance with this instruction. Um, there was some quite sad examples of people's, of, of pastors broadcasting on YouTube to a, a, a dwindling um, and sometimes derisory audience of, of viewers um, and there was um, very little pushback by and large but your church and John William Noble's church and some others um, in Scotland decided no that this had to be fought and to do it in a very expensive and formal way through judicial review. Um, what was that process like? Well, um, yes, at the very beginning when everything started off and we were all, everything was shut down that very first lockdown, we complied with that like virtually everybody did because there was a great deal of fear in the air, there was uncertainty, nobody quite knew what was, what was happening. Um, I mean, it was a very unusual and strange time, but very... And it was three weeks to flatten the curve, of course. And it was three weeks to flatten the curve. Now, within that three weeks, I, I was a medical doctor before I, uh, for nearly 10 years before I came into the ministry. So 
Yeah, I have a background in that, and I um, I felt it was part of my duty. People were so terribly afraid. I felt it was very, very important to be um, helping people not to be afraid. My job as a pastor is to uh, is to allay that fear, to help people to walk in faith and not fear. Even if this was the new black death that was going to kill people, my job was to to prepare people for uh, for eternity. And that certainly didn't stop. But I was looking into the statistics that were coming out even in those early days. And within a matter of just a very short period of time, it was very clear, very, very clear that, that this was not at all what people were afraid of. That, yes, um, people were dying, but the average age of death was above the average age of life uh, in the country. That, you know, uh, healthy young people were not being affected by this. And all the things that were being said by the chief medics and so on right at the very beginning. Um, and so very quickly as things began to go on and on and the, the hysteria and the fear was being pushed in the media, um, I realized along with other local church leaders here that we, we, we got together with was that you know, the biggest danger here for the government was having a petrified, terrified population. So we actually in, a, in, in the very early days were writing to both the Scottish government and our local government here saying, look, your biggest problem now is fear. Britain, polls were showing Britons were the most fearful of all the population of the whole of Europe. And so we wrote saying, what you need to do is get churches open quickly because we can help you. These are the very places you, people need to learn to come out of their houses. They need to learn to gather again. The very last place to be doing that is in pubs and nightclubs. Get the churches open. We can serve the community and, and, and be part of all of that. That was all ignored and, and, uh, and things got worse and worse. So over the, over the period of months, I and numbers of others were talking to one another saying, well, we're, we're not getting the leadership from the so-called national church leaders. They seem to have disappeared. I remember reading a, um, uh, an article in one of the, I think it was the Daily Telegraph, Simon Heffer. And, you know, Simon Heffer is an atheist, but he was writing, where is the spiritual leadership in a, in a time of crisis? You know, where's the Archbishop of Canterbury? He's disappeared. So numbers of us got together and we, we, we wrote some open letters to the Prime Minister, to the ministers of the of, of, of four nations, urging them to, to look again at what was happening and, and, and that the response to COVID was, was actually in danger of causing far, far more damage than, uh, than COVID itself. Um, so there was, a, there was a long period of trying to engage, largely being completely ignored, um, shut down uh, and so on. And there had been the pre preparation for a judicial review in England, which had then been withdrawn because when that second lockdown came, um, the government there, I think, probably because they, they were threatened by that judicial review, decided to exempt churches, for example, and, and, and public worship. They, they closed other things, golf clubs and so and so, but, but they said no uh, churches and, and uh, other uh, meeting place of other faiths would, would, would not be uh, included. However, when we got into that winter in Scotland, it was the reverse. Scotland was the only one of all of the, uh, the home nations where uh, churches and places of worship were closed. But it wasn't just closing premises. It was much, much more draconian than that because it was made illegal. Uh, it was made a criminal offence for even two people to stand together in the open air in a park to pray together. So it wasn't just about closing churches, it was actually about criminalizing any public manifestation of, of, of the worship of God. Um, now that was 
uh, something you know hugely dangerous and hugely significant because that kind of um, suppression of religion, religious practice, freedom of worship, freedom to actually express real religious faith, when that goes, when that religious liberty goes, you know, it, that tends to go along with a whole lot of uh, disappearance of, uh, of all kinds of other liberties, not just freedom of speech, which we're seeing hugely under attack today, freedom of association, all sorts of things. And so a number of uh, uh, folk were, were, were asked to meet together uh, to see whether we, we, there'd be something that could be done. I think an initial meeting had something like 60 or 70 church leaders uh, involved. We were helped by um, an organization called Christian Concern that has you know, expertise in, in, uh, in, in, in dealing with the courts and legal matters and so on. Uh, and finally, I think there were 29 of us as church leaders who, who were prepared to, to go forward and be part of that. And I was asked, <laughs> I, I was asked, would, they needed a name to be the first name on the, on the, uh, on the case. And, uh, and they said, look, would you, would, would you be willing to put your name uh, on that? So again, I, I, <laughs> I would have much rather that it wasn't there, but I, I just felt, well, I should do that. I, I believe this, and you know, I, I, you've got to be willing to stick stick your head above the parapet. So it was uncomfortable, but I felt it was the right thing to do. Our church leaders here, I discussed that with them. They they one hundred percent backed me in doing that. I said to them, "Look, this will this will put us in the spotlight. We'll get a lot of criticism. We'll get a lot of criticism from other." Sadly, from other churches uh, and other Christian leaders, uh, we've got to be aware of that, we've got to be prepared for that. Um, and they uh, said, no, you, you, you must do this. And so, so that's, that's what we did. And um, as you said, we, we won the case. And the judge, it's worth, it's worth looking up and reading the, uh, the, the judgment on that because it was very clear. And um, uh, I think that Although it was a difficult thing to do, I think um, it will, I hope, uh, set a precedent and it will, I hope, give protection and certainly give pause um, to others in the future. And I know that that ruling was being very closely monitored, not just here in Scotland, but in the rest of the UK. And I know for a fact that that was being discussed um, in number 10 Downing Street in the very day that the uh, ruling came out. So I think it's something that has implications um, far beyond just uh, Scotland. So I think, and, 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 and far beyond just the church as well, because I think some Christians, some Christians were nervous and felt, oh, we shouldn't do that. We, we, we need to be supportive of the government. Because the Bible tells us we have to, we have to honour kings and we have to be supportive of the government and that the powers that be are ordained uh, by God. Now, of course, all of that is true. And what the Apostle Paul is saying there, and what the Apostle Peter is saying there, is that Christians shouldn't be by nature rebels. We shouldn't be unlawful people. Um, we shouldn't be those who are seeking to cause havoc and mayhem and, 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 and denying all authority. One of the foundations of, um, uh, of, of biblical morality, of course, is the Ten Commandments. And honouring your father and mother is not just talking about narrowly within the family, it's talking about honouring authority, not just within the home, but also by implication within civil society and within the state. So Christians should be people who honour authority and, 
Uh, and they tell us very clearly, the only authority there is has come from God. God has given in his common grace uh, authority structures at all levels in human society because we know that the sinful heart is a perpetual factory of ungodliness and of unruliness and of, and of wickedness. It needs to be restrained. But don't forget that the Apostle Paul who wrote those things and the Apostle Peter who wrote those things were the very same ones who were put to death for the state for ultimately not bowing to, to the state. So they never, ever said, give absolute authority to the state. Um, Peter is the one, as you said, who got right back out of prison, started preaching again and said, we'll obey God rather than men. Now, you don't do that. You don't pull that one out just because every time there's something the government does that you don't like, you say, well, I'm going to obey God rather than men. No, it's not obeying my idea of what I would like God to say, but it's obeying what God actually does say. So part of the Christians and the church's way of subordinating itself to society and to rulers is to help them rule well. You don't help good rule by endorsing governments when they are actually acting unlawfully. And so the truth is that it took the courts to say, yes, you're right. When you say this government is acting unlawfully and wickedly, yes, you're right. And we need to rebuke them and tell them to go back and think again, because governments are flawed. They're full of people with flaws in their human hearts. Corruption comes out of their hearts as well. And so Christians in a democracy have got the great privilege of being part of the government because we vote for the government, we can lobby the government, we are to seek to influence the government. It's not a, an outright dictatorship where we have no say and where any dissent is, is silenced and you put in prison. Um, at least still, we've got that opportunity. And so the calling of the church is not to do the easy thing and say, oh, well, we'll tell the government what they want to hear and then they'll perhaps speak well of us. It's to do the difficult thing when the government is doing wrong and to say, no, for the sake of uh, our society, our communities and the people, we have to stand up and be willing to speak uh, truth uh, to power. People like to talk about who's speaking truth to power, but, you know, <laughs> We're living increasingly in a world of, 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 of censorship, um, of shutting down debate, of uh, limiting free speech, and, and not just the official versions of that, but because that's so rampant, people are self-censoring. And, and I think the church is in danger of, of that too. We say, well, 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 we don't want to speak out lest it cause trouble. Well, it may very well be that, that the church is becoming one of the few places where there actually can be that unafraid uh, freedom to speak um, and to say what's true, no matter what the consequences are. The consequences may, may become much, much more difficult for us. And I'm aware of that sometimes when I stand up and I'm conscious what I'm saying here, perhaps even just reading this passage of scripture, many people today would say, well, yet yeah, that's hate speech. Well, we've seen many cases of pastors being arrested, including in Scotland, um, utterly unlawfully. There was a pastor arrested in Perth, a, a, a large uh, gentleman from Australia uh, who was a visiting pastor in a local small Baptist church. And I, I saw him being arrested on video. He, he, he got it videoed and... Um, uh, he had his camera running when he was in the police car so you could still hear the audio uh, and it was quite funny because he had to tell the police officers where the police station was because they weren't from Perth they had been brought in and they didn't right? actually know how to find Perth police station 
Um, and uh, they, they kept, they kept a breach of the peace charge hanging over that man's head for months until he actually went back to Australia. Now, uh, I did uh, formally inquire of Police Scotland what their policy was regarding preaching in the street. And their written policy was that what the preacher was doing was entirely lawful and he should have been left alone. Mm -hmm. And their officers acted in a way entirely contrary to the way that Police Scotland tell their officers they should be. Mm -hmm. um, but this obviously doesn't solve the problem when uh, the Crown Office keeps a charge of breach of the peace over a man for months. Mm -hmm. Right, there isn't um, there isn't a correction of error. When the state makes an error, it tends to double mm -hmm. down. It doesn't mm -hmm. tend to correct the error. So you manage to force it to correct an error. This is very unusual. Yeah, I think I think that's why it is important that um, that Christians are willing to use the courts. Um, again, there can be a reticence there because we say, well, you know, the Bible says we shouldn't go to law with one another and so on. But again, that's, that's taking things totally out of context. What Paul is talking about there is Christians fighting each other uh, out in public and so on. But, but, but the Apostle Paul did precisely that. He, he, when he was wrongly imprisoned and beaten in Philippi, he essentially took the matter to the public magistrate and said, I need a public uh, ruling on this to show that this was wrong. Now I've been involved, I'm a trustee of, um, of the Christian Institute which does um, a lot of uh, work in public policy but also on defending um, cases where um, religious liberty uh, is at stake. And, and again I come across Christians who say well why, why bother with that? Well <laughs> the reason is uh, it's not just to protect the freedom for Christians to preach the gospel, it's actually protecting other people as well for their for, to, for their freedom of being able to speak in public and so on and not to be um, and, and not to be wrongly arrested and wrongly charged and, and there is a huge problem with the interpretation of laws many many Christians believe and many many other people non Christians believe that well you can't say that or well you can't do that and in nearly every case they're wrong about that um, you can and you do have the right to the problem is that they self-censor because they think, oh, you can't say that. Um, and, as you've uh, rightly said, the police, unfortunately, often misinterpret the law in their own guidelines, but often even misinterpret their own guidelines. So I've, I've been part of a number of cases, a lot of cases, um, which have been won defending uh, street preachers and others and so on, where the police has, have had to admit their error, where they've had to pay compensation, and where they've had to um, re-educate as to what, what the position actually is. And these are, these are time-consuming and, 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 and sort of painful things to have to do, but it is important because otherwise you've not got the rule of law, you've got the rule of somebody's interpretation of somebody else's interpretation of somebody else's feeling about what the law should be. And that's not the rule of law. That's the rule of the cultural zeitgeist. And, um, and very often it's, it's actually the media and it's the opinion formers in society who have more clout than the actual law itself because they are the ones who communicate to people, um, oh, you, this is a scam, you know, it's unlawful to do this or whatever. And it's just not the case. So we have to fight back against that because that's not freedom. That's, that's, that, that's how, 
that's how you get a creeping authoritarianism and, and to, indeed a totalitarianism because, because it's not just authoritarian but what you've got is everybody in the population believing the same thing that oh that's what the law really is but it isn't so that's far worse because instead of the populace being united and saying we're not having this it's the populace who are actually imposing it often on a minority and that's very very dangerous and of course the the basic principle of law is everyone's equal before the law right not because we're equal but because the law has to treat people because the law is impartial the law is impartial. yeah should yeah. be now um when you get a large organization like police scotland like the scottish government uh, versus an individual this is a, in, initially a pretty unequal fight and the courts are meant to level that up a bit one of the things we're seeing is that the law um, has become something else because um, the the contracts that police officers and civil servants are working under are sufficiently draconian and there's sufficient fear within those organizations mm -hmm. that organizational policy becomes de facto law so the organization says do something you better do it and that becomes the law for the people on the ground and they behave as though it's the law even though it's completely illegal mm -hmm. right completely unlawful mm -hmm. they will behave as though policy is law we saw a lot of that the name person fight brought that out um, but it's it's um, it's a it's a much deeper seated problem um, we should bring this I think to close we've been talking for, for a while and it's been fascinating uh, listening to you um, I, I've got a couple of comments on um, the position of, of Christians versus the rest of the world. Um, uh, one is that, that, that we, you said the Christians shouldn't be rebellious. Ah, amen to that, because the whole point is we are not in rebellion, they are, right? It's the world that's in rebellion against God and we are not. We are following God and that's an inherently peaceful position. Um, I'm well, we are in a struggle to do that because we're still, our hearts are still sinful and our hearts are still by nature rebellious, only by the grace of God. And so we have to, we have to fight that rebellion daily uh, against them. So it's not that, it's not anything in us that is a qualitative difference. We are, we are, the only difference that separates a Christian from any other person the, is, the, is the grace and mercy is, of is, God. Is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, but, this, but this is a yeah. change. It's yes. about the change. And post that change, there is an ability to follow God that, that is... And a recognition that, of authority, because yes. part of the very definition is you recognize God's authority rather yes. than uh, you submit yourself to his authority rather than fight it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and therefore, but, but the, I mean, derivatives. The, the, the message of Pentecost, etc., is that that is, that is accessible to human beings. The change, yeah. one of the, the finest Christian gentlemen I ever met was a, was, a, was a lay preacher, a street preacher in my hometown of Airdrie and his name, and everyone in the town knew him, and both of them loved him, was Drunken Duncan Donaldson. Now, he wasn't drunken anymore, but he had been, yeah. right? Yeah. And when um, he was in and out of the bar, the bar L, the bar Linney prison, uh, mm -hmm. very often, um, he would, be sle he, he would uh, sleep rough in Centenary Park in Airdrie. And a little woman from one of the flats that overlooked the park would, would take him out a bowl of soup, keep him alive. Um, and he was a violent man and he was a hard drinking man and Duncan got converted 
the love of Jesus Christ shone out of that man's mm. face. <coughs> and he was A, a pleasure to talk to, a fabulous preacher. And the intellect with which he preached, the, the humour he brought, the stories, the, uh, the insight was, was tremendous to listen to. And he would go on Airdrie High Street and he would always have a huge crowd. Mm. No one would miss a chance mm. to listen to Duncan. And he used to go into Barlinny again and preach in the streets, uh, preach to the mm. preach to the prisoners and, and, and talk to them. And the woman who, took, who, who brought him soup, well, he married her. All right, so... Um, well, that's the power of God, isn't it, to change human life? It's a transition. Yeah. The change can be tremendous. And it's beyond mm. human understanding. It's mm. something else. Um, so when I say I'm not suggesting that, that, that Christians are special, I'm saying that the effect of God on yeah. them is, is yeah. special. Um, now, um, in the battles that we have ahead, and I suspect there may be many, because I mm. suspect that we are going to be in a time more akin to the first century than the 19th, mm -hmm. uh, as we go forward, we're in a situation where there is a, a, another religion trying to replace Christianity, and it's doing so very aggressively, and it's doing so with a great deal of deception. Right? Mm. It's not being honest that it's a religion, but it is. Um, and uh, this is going to call on Christians to learn to be comfortable with, be even joyful about persecution and strife and difficulty. Now, you've been through, we've covered a couple of things that you've been through. Um, to, to finish, have you got any final advice you would like to give Christians um, who might be watching this, who might be facing a challenge that they think um, requires resistance, but where they're finding, um, they're finding that for whatever reason difficult or intimidating and they're not sure how to proceed? How would how would you counsel them to uh, to think through that problem? Uh, I would simply say that th they're not any different to uh, true Christians who have lived uh, at any time in history and any time in the world. That's what real Christianity is. The sign, the thing to be really worried about is if you're not feeling a struggle anymore. When people come to me and say, I'm really struggling, I say, oh, that's great, you're still struggling. Um, Hebrews 11 is that wonderful chapter, isn't it, that, that looks back over all the great saints of old uh, and then says, look, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race uh, marked out for us. We live in these last days when we have the wonderful privileges of the fulfillment, um, the, the age of the Spirit, the age of, um, uh, of blessing that, that, that these who went before us only looked, looked towards, they saw it from a distance. But only together with us uh, will they be made perfect. We have wonderful, wonderful privileges, but that confirms upon us in this age even greater responsibilities. And that's why in Hebrews 12 he goes on to say, you know, um, we've not come just to the voice that shakes the earth, but the one that is shaking from heaven and will shake the whole earth. And we worship God with reverence and all, but keep, keep running the race. It's going to get harder, I think, um, unless there's this massive sea change, and I pray to God that there may be a massive 
uh, change. You know, things have happened in the past. There have been great revivals in this country where uh, the situation uh, politically and socially and culturally was was in a dire situation, worse than today. But that's not guaranteed. And if not, things will get far, far worse. And I have said to numbers, particularly of young Christian leaders and those in training, that it would not surprise me if I end my ministry in prison. It wouldn't surprise me because the way things are going, saying what I say and teaching what the Bible says will become increasingly unpalatable. So I have to be prepared for that. I'm not looking for that. I don't want that. But I, I foresee that as a distinct possibility. The Bible keeps saying to me, don't throw in the towel. He who endures to the end uh, will be saved. Jesus says in the last days there'll be many, many difficult things. There'll be all kinds of falsehood. There'll be all kinds of hardship. And the love of many will grow cold. And that's a warning. It, it, it's not a... It's not, a, it's not a fatalistic prophecy, it's a warning. And the, and the warning is, don't let that happen to you. Don't let that love grow cold. Allow the love of God in Jesus Christ to burn in your heart so that nothing, nothing matters more. There's a lovely collect, a prayer, it was actually in the, the English Book of Common Prayer uh, for, this, for this Sunday past, urging God's people to love the thing that God commands, a desire that which he does promise. That so amid the manifold and sundry changes of this world, our hearts may there be surely fixed where true joys are to be found. That is, our hearts are to be fixed, anchored in the glory of the coming kingdom of Christ. If they're anchored there, what can man do to me? He can't take anything away, it doesn't matter. If they're not anchored there, then we will be at the mercy of the of the waves and the buffeting of the winds uh, all around us, and uh, and and we'll be in, in very great danger. So, do not give. That's why, in that same epistle, to these hard-pressed believers who have got so many reasons uh, to give up because of rising persecution, struggle, ostracism, being put to the edges of society. That's why the apostle says, "Don't give up meeting together," as some are in the habit of doing but encourage one another every day, the more as you see the day approaching, because giving up and being on your own and, and, being, and, being, and being marginalized on your own is very, very difficult. But gathering together and being regularly renewed by the Spirit of God, the presence of the Lord in the midst of his people is what will keep you going and keep you enduring. So the church must continue to be the church and the church must continue to meet as the church and um, that is what will give us uh, the strength to continue and Christian leaders have to play their part with joy not with compulsion it's hard but it's a glorious thing and uh, it's a it's a great responsibility but with that goes uh, enormous privilege so there are hard days ahead for Christians in this country but these are the days that God has called us to live in and 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 the blood of the martyrs has always been the seat of the church. Where the church is being persecuted, where the church is being uh, opposed, where the church is being marginalized in the world today, that is where the church is growing. And maybe if we really want to see the church growing in this country as we long to do, as it has done in the past, maybe along with that needs to go those things that caused the church to grow in the past. Uh, our, our, our original congregation 
was called the Wind Church, and it met down uh, in Back Wind, which was down near the uh, near the Trongate. Um, and it was formed in the 1680s, which was known here in Scotland as the Killing Times. Uh, those who stood for uh, the Reformation faith in those days were ostracised, they were persecuted, they were run out of their buildings, they often met in, in conventicles in the open air outside. Um, and uh, the Killing Times was not a metaphorical thing, that was a real thing. But it was uh, a great... Uh, period of flourishing and out of that and out of the stand that many of those made um, centuries of, uh, of of peace and penetration of the church into society uh, resulted and some generations that's that's the calling of God's people and uh, if that is to be our calling then we must uh, seek the strengthening and the courage from the Lord to stand and as Paul says <laughs> taking the armour of God, not the physical armour to fight people physically, but the gospel armour of faith, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and praying in the Spirit uh, with all prayer, so that having done everything, we will stand and not fall. And to have stood until the end is to have done what God has called us to do. And so that would be my encouragement to Christian believers in the land today. And uh, on that great day, when the Lord Jesus returns, or when we go to be with him, if it's before that time, on that great day, nothing else will matter but whether we have stood. And that's what uh, I pray for myself, for my congregation, and for, for all Christians uh, who serve the Lord uh, in, our, in our land today. Uh, William. Uh, thank you very much for that. It's been lovely talking to you. Until next time, bye. Thank you. Mm -hmm.